Raistlin felt a sadness seep into him. Here was the workshop of a man with no ambition, of a man in whom the creative spark had flickered out, presuming that spark had ever once been kindled. Theobald came to his lab not to create, but because he wanted to be alone, to read a book, throw crumbs to the mice in their cage, crush some oregano leaves for the luncheon stew, perhaps drop a scroll now and then, a scroll whose magic might or might not work. Whether it did or it didn't was all the same to him. Feeling better, Gordo? Master Theobald bustled about importantly, doing very little with a great deal of fuss. Fine, I knew you would. Too much excitement, that's all. Take your place at the far end of the table. John Farnish, you take your place there in the center. Raistlin, where the devil—oh, there you are. Master Theobald glared at him crossly. What are you doing skulking about there in the darkness? Come stand in the light like a civilized human being. You will take your place at the far end. Yes, right there. Raistlin moved to his assigned seat in silence. Gordo stood hunch-shouldered and glum. The laboratory was a sad disappointment, and this was starting to look far too much like schoolwork. Gordo was bitter over the lack of a demon. John Farnish took his seat, smiling and confident, his hands folded calmly on the table in front of him. Raistlin had never hated anyone in his life as much as he hated John Farnish at that moment. Every organ in Raistlin's body was tangled up with every other organ. His bowels squirmed and wrapped around his stomach, his heart lurched and pressed painfully against his lungs. His mouth was dry, so dry his throat closed and set him coughing. His palms were wet. He wiped his hands surreptitiously on his shirt. Master Theobald sat at the head of the table. He was grave and solemn and appeared to take exception to the grinning John Farnish. He frowned and tapped his finger on the table. John Farnish, realizing his mistake, swallowed his grin and was immediately as grave and solemn as a cemetery owl. That's better, said the master. This test you are about to take is quite a serious matter. As serious as the test you will take when you are grown and prepared to advance through the various ranks of magical knowledge and power. I repeat... This test is every bit as serious, for if you do not pass the one, you will never have a chance to take the other. Gordo gave a great gapping yawn. Master Theobald cast him a reproving glance, then continued. It would be advisable if we could give this test to every child who enrolls in one of the mage schools prior to his or her entrance. Unfortunately, that is not possible. In order to take this test, you must possess a considerable amount of arcane knowledge. Thus the conclave has deemed that a student should have at least six years of study before taking the elementary test. Those who have completed six years will be given the elementary test even if they have previously shown neither talent nor inclination." 
Theobald knew, but did not say, that the failed student would then be placed under surveillance, watched throughout the rest of his life. It was improbable, but such a failure might become a renegade wizard, one who refused to follow the laws of magic as handed down and adjudicated by the conclave. Renegade wizards were considered extremely dangerous, rightly so, and were hunted by the members of the conclave. The boys knew nothing about renegade wizards, and Master Theobald wisely refrained from mentioning it. Gordo would have been a nervous wreck the remainder of his existence. The test is simple for one who possesses the talent, extremely difficult for one who does not. Every person wanting to advance in the study of magic takes the same elementary test. You are not casting a spell, not even a cantrip. It will take many more years of study and hard work before you have the discipline and control necessary to cast the most rudimentary of magical spells. This test merely determines whether or not you have what was called in the old days the God's Gift. He was referring to the old gods of magic, three cousins, Solanari, Lunatari, Nuitari. Their names were all that was left of them, according to most people on Ancelon. Their names clung to their moons, to the silver moon, the red, and the supposed black moon. Wary of public opinion, aware that they were not universally liked or trusted, the wizards took care not to become involved in religious arguments. They taught their pupils that the moons influenced magic much the way they influenced the tides. It was a physical phenomenon, nothing spiritual or mystical about it. Yet Raistlin wondered, had the gods truly gone from the world, leaving only their lights burning in night's window? Or were those lights glints from immortal, ever-watching eyes? Master Theobald turned to the wooden shelves behind him, opened a drawer. He drew out three strips of lamb's skin, placed a strip in front of each boy. John Farnish was taking this quite seriously now, after the master's speech. Gordo was resigned, sullen, wanting to end this and return to his mates. He was probably already concocting the lies he would tell about the master's laboratory. Raistlin examined the small strip of lamb's skin, no longer than his forearm. The skin was soft. It had never been used, was smooth to the touch. The master placed a quill pen and an ink pot in front of each of the three boys. Standing back, he folded his hands over his stomach and said in solemn, sonorous tones, You will write down on this lamb's skin the words, I magus. Nothing else, master? asked John Farnish. Nothing else. Gordo squirmed and bit the end of his quill. How do you spell magus? Master Theobald fixed him with a reproving stare. That is part of the test. What, what will happen if we do it right, master? Raistlin asked in a voice he could not recognize as his own. If you have the gift, something will happen. If not, nothing, replied Master Theobald. He did not look at Raistlin as he spoke. 
He wants me to fail, Raistlin understood, without quite knowing why. The master did not like him, but that wasn't the reason. Raistlin guessed that it had something to do with jealousy of his sponsor, Antimides. The knowledge strengthened his resolve. He picked up the quill, which was black, had come from the wing of a crow. Various types of quills were used to write various scrolls. An eagle's feather was extremely powerful, as was that of a swan. A goose quill was for everyday ordinary writing, only to be used for magical penning in an emergency. A crow quill was useful for almost any type of magic, though some of the more fanatic white robes objected to its color. Raistlin touched the feather with his finger. He was extraordinarily conscious of the feather's feel, its crispness contrasting oddly with its softness. Rainbows cast by the globe light shimmered on the feather's glistening black surface. The point was newly cut, sharp. No cracked and sputtering pen for this important event. The smell of the ink reminded him of Antimides and the time he had praised Raistlin's work. Raistlin had long ago discovered, through eavesdropping on a conversation between the master and Guillaume, that Antimides was paying the bill for the school, not the conclave as the Archmages had intimated. This test would prove if his investment had been sound. Raistlin prepared to dip the quill in the ink, then hesitated, feeling a qualm of near panic. Everything he had been taught seemed to slide from his mind, like butter melting in a hot skillet. He could not remember how to spell magus. The quill shook in his sweaty fingers. He glanced sidelong through lowered lashes at the other two. I'm done, said Gordo. Ink covered his fingers. He'd managed to splash it on his face, where the black splotches overlapped the brown freckles. He held up the scroll on which he'd first printed the word Majos. Having sneaked a peek at John Farnish's scroll, Gordo had hastily crossed out Majos and written Majos in next to it. I'm done, Gordo repeated loudly. What happens now? For you, nothing, said Theobald with a severe look. But I wrote the word just as good as him, Gordo protested, sulking. Have you learned nothing, you stupid boy, Theobald demanded angrily. A word of magic must be written perfectly, spelled correctly, the first time. You are writing not only with the lamb's blood, but with your own blood. The magic flows through you and into the pen, and from thence onto the scroll. Oh, bugger it, said Gordo, and he shoved the scroll off the table. John Farnish was writing with ease, seemingly, the pen gliding over the sheepskin, a spot of ink on his right forefinger. His handwriting was readable, but tended to be cramped and small. Raistlin dipped the quill in the ink and began to write in sharply angled, bold, large letters the words, I, Magus. John Farnish sat back, a look of satisfaction on his face. Raistlin, just finishing, heard the boy catch his breath. Raistlin looked up. The letters on the sheepskin in front of John Farnish had begun to glow. 
The glow was faint, a dim red-orange, a spark newly struck, struggling for life. Garn, said Gordo, impressed. This almost made up for the demon. Well done, John, said Master Theobald expansively. Flushed with pleasure, John Farnish gazed in awe at the parchment, and then he laughed. I have it, he cried. Master Theobald turned his gaze to Raistlin. Though the master attempted to appear concerned, one corner of his lip curled. The black letters on the sheepskin in front of Raistlin remained black. Raistlin clutched the quill so violently he snapped off the top. He looked away from the exultant John Farnish. He paid no attention to the scornful Gordo. He blotted from his mind the leering triumph of the master. He concentrated on the letters in I, Magus, and he said a prayer. Gods of magic, if you are gods and not just moons, don't let me fail. Don't let me falter. Raistlin turned inward to the very core of his being, and he vowed, I will do this. Nothing in my life matters except this. No moment of my life exists except this moment. I am born in this moment, and if I fail, I will die in this moment. Gods of magic, help me. I will dedicate my life to you. I will serve you always. I will bring glory to your name. Help me, please, help me. He wanted this so much. He had worked so hard for it for so long. He focused on the magic, concentrated all his energy. His frail body began to wilt beneath the strain. He felt faint and giddy. The globe of light expanded in his dazed vision to three globes. The floor was unsteady beneath him. He lowered his head in despair to the stone table. The stone was cool and firm beneath his fevered cheek. He shut his eyes. Hot tears burned the lids. He could still see, imprinted on his eyelids, the three globes of magical light. To his astonishment, he saw that inside each globe was a person. One was a fine, handsome young man dressed all in white robes that shimmered with a silver light. He was strong and well-muscled, with the physique of a warrior. He carried in his hand a staff of wood, topped by a golden dragon's claw holding a diamond. Another was also a young man, but he was not handsome. He was grotesque. His face was as round as a moon. His eyes were dry, dark, and empty wells. He was dressed in black robes, and he held in his hands a crystal orb, inside which swirled the heads of five dragons, red, green, blue, white, and black. Standing between the two was a beautiful young woman. Her hair was as black as the crow's wing, streaked with white. Her robes were as red as blood. She held in her arms a large leather-bound book. The three were vastly different, strangely alike. Do you know who we are? asked the man in white. Raistlin nodded hesitantly. 
He knew them. He wasn't quite sure he understood why or how. You pray to us, yet many speak our names with their lips only, not their hearts. Do you truly believe in us? asked the woman in red. Raistlin considered this question. You came to me, didn't you? he answered. The glib answer displeased the god of light and the god of darkness. The man with the moon face grew colder, and the man in white looked grim. The woman in red was pleased with him, however. She smiled. Solinari spoke sternly. You are very young. Do you understand the promise you have made to us, the promise to worship us and glorify our names? To do so will go against the beliefs of many, may put you into mortal danger. I understand, Raistlin answered without hesitation. Nuitari spoke next, his voice like splinters of ice. Are you prepared to make the sacrifices we will require of you? I am prepared, Raistlin answered steadily, adding, but only to himself, After all, what more can you demand of me that I have not already given? The three heard his unspoken response. Solinari shook his head. Nuitari wore an almost sinister grin. Lunatari's laughter danced through Raistlin, exhilarating, disturbing. You do not understand, and if you could foresee what will be asked of you in the future, you would run from this place and never come back. Still, we have watched you, and we have been impressed with you. We grant your request on one condition. Remember always that you have seen us and spoken to us. Never deny your faith in us, or we will deny you. The three globes of life coalesced into one, looking very much like an eye, with a white rim, a red iris, a black pupil. The eye blinked once and then remained wide open, staring. The words I magus were all he could see, black on white lamb's skin. Are you ill, Raistlin? The master's voice, as through a dank fog. Shut up, Raistlin breathed. Doesn't the fool know they are here? Doesn't he know they are watching, waiting? I magus, Raistlin whispered the words aloud. Black on white, he imbued them with his heart's blood. The black letters began to glow red, like the sword resting in the blacksmith's forge fire. The letters burned hotter and brighter until I Magus was traced in letters of flame. The lambskin blackened, curled in upon itself, was consumed. The fire died. Raistlin, exhausted, sagged on his stool. On the stone table before him was nothing but a charred spot and bits of greasy ash. Inside him burned a fire that would never be quenched, perhaps not even in death. He heard a noise, a sort of strangled croak. Master Theobald, Gordo, and John Farnish were all staring at him, wide-eyed and open-mouthed. Raistlin slid off his stool, made a polite bow to the master. May I be excused now, sir? 
Theobald nodded silently, unable to speak. He would later tell the story at the conclave, tell of the remarkable test performed by one of his young pupils, relate how the lambskin had been devoured by the flames. Theobald added, with due modesty, that it was his skill as a teacher that had undoubtedly inspired his young pupil, wrought such a miracle. Antimedes would make a special point to inform Parsalian, who noted the incident with an asterisk next to Raistlin's name in the book where he kept a list of every student of magic in Ancelon. That night, when the others were asleep, Raistlin wrapped himself in his thick cloak and slipped outside. The snow had stopped falling. The stars and moons were scattered like a rich lady's jewels across the black sky. Solinari was a shining diamond, Lunatari a bright ruby, Nuitari, ebony, and onyx could not be seen, but he was there. He was there. The snow glistened white and pure and untouched in the lambent light of stars and moons. The trees cast double shadows that streaked the white with black, black tinged with blood red. Raistland looked up at the moons and he laughed, ringing laughter that echoed among the trees, laughter that could be heard all the way to heaven. He dashed headlong into the woods, trampling the white, unbroken snowbanks, leaving his tracks, his mark. Book Three The magic is in the blood. It flows from the heart. Every time you use it, part of yourself goes with it. Only when you are prepared to give of yourself and receive nothing back will the magic work for you. Theobald Beckman, Master Chapter One Raistlin sat on his stool in the classroom, hunched over his desk, laboriously copying a spell. It was a sleep spell simple for an experienced wizard, but still far beyond the reach of a sixteen-year-old, no matter how precocious. Raistlin knew this because though he had been forbidden to do so, he had attempted to cast the spell. Armed with his elementary spellbook, smuggled out of the school beneath his shirt, and the requisite spell component, Raistlin had tried to cast the sleep spell on his uneasy but steadfastly loyal brother. He had spoken the words, flung the sand into Caramon's face, and waited. Stop that, Caramon. Put your hands down. But, Raist, I got sand in my eyes. You're supposed to be asleep. I'm sorry, Raist. I guess I'm just not tired. It's almost supper time. With a deep sigh, Raistlin had returned the spellbook to its place at his desk, the sand to its jar in the laboratory. He had been forced to acknowledge that perhaps Master Theobald knew what he was talking about, on this occasion at least. Casting a magic spell required something more than words and sand. If that was all it took... Gordo would have been a mage and not slaughtering sheep as he was now. The magic comes from within, Master Theobald had lectured. 
It begins at the center of your being, flows outward. The words pick up the magic as it surges from your heart up into your brain and from thence into your mouth. Speaking the words, you give the magic form and substance, and thus you cast the spell. Words spoken from an empty mouth do nothing but move the lips. And though Raistlin more than suspected Master Theobald of having copied this lecture from someone else, in fact, Raistlin was to find it several years later in a book written by Parsalian, the young student had been impressed by the words and had noted them down carefully in the front of his spellbook. That speech was in his thoughts as he copied for the hundredth time the spell onto scrap paper, preparatory to copying the spell into his primer. A leather-bound book, the primer was given to each novice mage who had passed his initial test. The noviet would copy into his primer every spell committed to memory. In addition, he must also know how to pronounce correctly the words of the spell and how to write it onto a scroll, and he must know and have collected any components that the spell required. Every quarter Master Theobald tested the noviates. There were two in his school, Raistlin and John Farnish, on the spells they had learned. If the students performed to the master's satisfaction, they were permitted to write the spells into their primers. Only yesterday, at the end of the spring quarter, Raistlin had taken the test on his new spell and had passed it easily. John Farnish, by contrast, had failed, having transposed two letters in the third word. Master Theobald had given Raistland permission to copy down the spell, the very sleep spell he had attempted to cast, into his primer. The master had sent John Farnish to copy the spell out two hundred times until he could write it correctly. Raistland knew the sleep spell backward and forward and inside out. He could have written it upside down while standing on his head, yet he could not make it work. He had even prayed to the gods of magic, asking for their help, as they had given him help during his elementary test. The gods were not forthcoming. He did not doubt the gods. He doubted himself. It was some fault within him, something he was doing wrong. And so, instead of copying the spell into his primer, Raistlin was doing much the same as John Farnish, going over and over the words, meticulously writing down every letter until he could convince himself that he had not made a single mistake. A shadow, a broad shadow, fell across his page. He looked up. Yes, master, he said, trying to hide his irritation at the interruption, and not quite succeeding. Raistlin had long ago realized that he was smarter than Master Theobald and more gifted in magic. He stayed in the school because there was nowhere else to go, and, as this proved, he still had much to learn. Master Theobald could cast a sleep spell. Do you know what time it is? Master Theobald asked. It is dinner time. You should be in the common room with the other boys. Thank you, but I'm not hungry, Master, Raistlin said ungraciously and went back to his work. Master Theobald frowned. A well-fed man himself, 
one who enjoyed his meat and ale, he could not understand someone like Raistlin, to whom food was fuel to keep his body going and nothing more. Nonsense! You have to eat! What are you doing that is so important that it causes you to skip a meal? Master Theobald could see perfectly well what Raistlin was doing. I am working at copying this spell, Master, Raistlin said, gritting his teeth at the man's idiocy. I do not feel ready yet to write in my primer. Master Theobald looked down at the scraps of paper littering the desk. He picked up one, then another. But these are adequate. Quite good, in fact. No, there must be something wrong, Raistlin said impatiently. Otherwise I could have been able to cast— He had not meant to say that. He bit his tongue and fell silent, glowering down at his ink-stained fingers. Ah, said Master Theobald, with the ghost of a smile, which, since Raistlin was not looking, he did not see. So you have been attempting a little spell-casting, have you? Raistlin did not reply. If he could have cast a spell now, he would have summoned demons from the abyss and ordered them to haul off Master Theobald. The master leaned back and laced his fingers over his stomach, which meant that he was about to launch into one of his lectures. It didn't work, I take it. I'm not surprised. You are far too proud, young man, far too self-absorbed and self-satisfied. You are a taker, not a giver. Everything flows into you, nothing flows out. The magic is in the blood, it flows from the heart. Every time you use it, part of yourself goes with it. Only when you are prepared to give of yourself and receive nothing back will the magic work for you. Raistlin lifted his head, shook his long, straight brown hair out of his face. He stared straight ahead. Yes, master, he said coldly, impassively. Thank you, master. Master Theobald's tongue clicked against the roof of his mouth. You are seated on a very high horse right now, young man. Some day you will fall off, and if the fall doesn't kill you, you might learn something from it. The master grunted. I'm going to dinner now. I'm hungry. Raistlin returned to his work, a scornful smile curling his lips. Chapter 2 that summer, the summer of the twins' sixteenth year, life for the Magere family continued to improve. Guillaume had been hired to help cut a stand of pines on the slopes of Prayer's Eye Peak. The property belonged to an absentee lord who was having the wood hauled north to build a stockade. The job paid well and looked as if it would last a long time, for the stockade was going to be a large one. Caramon worked full-time for the prospering farmer Sedge, who had extended his land holdings and was now shipping grains, fruit, and vegetables to the markets of Haven. Caramon worked long hours for a portion of the crops, some of which he sold, the rest he brought home. The widowed Judith was considered a member of the family. 
She maintained her own small house, but for all practical purposes she lived at the Magere's. Rosamond could not manage without her. Rosamond herself was much improved. She had not fallen into one of her trance-like states in several years. She and the widow performed the chores around the house and spent much of their time visiting the neighbors. Had Guillaume known exactly what such visits entailed, he might have been worried about his wife, but he assumed Rosamond and the widow were doing nothing more than sharing the latest gossip. He could not know, nor would he have believed, the truth of the matter. Guillaume and Caramon both liked the widow Judith. Raistlin grew to dislike her more than ever, perhaps because during the summer he was home with her, whereas the other two were not. He saw the influence the widow wielded over his mother, and he disliked and distrusted it. More than once he came in on their whispered conversations, conversations that would end abruptly upon his arrival. He tried to eavesdrop, hoping to hear what the two were saying. The widow Judith had excellent hearing, however, and he was usually discovered. One day, however, the two women happened to be sitting at the kitchen table, beneath a window where several pies were cooling. Walking up on them from outside, his footsteps lost among the rustling of the leaves of the Valenwood tree, Raistlin heard their voices. He halted in the shadows. The high priest is not pleased with you, Rosamond Magere. I have had a letter from him this day. He wonders why you have not brought your husband and children into the arms of Belzor. Rosamond's response was meek and defensive. She had tried. She had spoken to Guillaume of Belzor several times, but her husband had only laughed at her. He did not need to have faith in any god. He had faith in himself and his good right arm, and that was that. Caramon said he was quite willing to attend the meetings of the Belzorites, especially if they served food. As for Raistlin, Rosamond's voice trailed off. As for Raistlin, he was eager to hear more, but at that moment the widow Judith rose to see to the pies and saw him standing at the corner of the house. He and Judith looked intently at each other. Neither gave anything away to the other, however, except a shared enmity. The widow Judith brought in the pies and closed the shutters. Raistlin continued on to his garden. Who in the abyss is this Belzor, he wondered, and why does he want to embrace us? It's some sort of thing of mother's, said Caramon upon questioning. You know, one of those woman things. They all meet together and talk about stuff. What kind of stuff, I don't know. I went once, but I fell asleep. Rosamond never said anything to Raistlin about Belzor, rather to Raistlin's disappointment. He considered bringing up the matter himself, but he feared this would involve talking to the widow Judith, and he avoided contact with her as much as possible. The master was off on his visit to the conclave. School was out for the summer. Raistlin spent his days planting, cultivating, and adding to his collection of herbs. He was gaining some small reputation among the neighbors for his knowledge of herbs, 
sold what he himself did not need and thus was able to contribute to the family's income. He forgot about Belzor. The Magier family was happy and prosperous that summer, a summer that would stand out in the twins' minds as golden, a gold that shone all the more brightly in contrast to the coming darkness. Raistlin and Caramon were walking along the road leading to Solace, returning from Farmer Sedge's. Caramon was coming back from work. Raistlin had gone to the farmer's to deliver a bundle of dried lavender. His clothes still smelled of the fragrant flower. From that time he would never be able to abide the scent of lavender. As they neared Solace, a small boy sighted them, began waving his arms and broke into a run. He came pounding along the dusty track to meet them. Hello, young Ned, said Caramon, who knew every child in town. I can't play goblin ball with you right now, but maybe after dinner we— Hush, Caramon, Raistlin ordered tersely. The child was wide-eyed and solemn as an owlet. Can't you see? Something's wrong. What is it? What has happened? Th there's been an accident, the boy managed to gasp out of breath. You're— your father. He might have said more, but he'd lost his audience. The twins were racing for home. Raistlin ran as fast as he could for a short distance, but not even fear and adrenaline could keep his frail body going for long. His strength gave out and he was forced to slow down. Caramon kept going, but after a few moments realized he was alone. He paused to look behind for his brother. Raistlin waved his brother on ahead. Are you sure? Caramon's worried look asked. I am sure, Raistlin's look answered. Caramon nodded once, turned, and kept running. Raistlin made what haste he could, anxiety nodding his stomach and chilling him, causing him to shiver in the summer sunshine. Raistlin was surprised at his reaction. He had not supposed he cared this much for his father. They had driven Gilone in a wagon from Prayer's Eye Peak back to Solace. Raistlin arrived to find his father still in the wagon with a crowd gathered around. At the news of the accident, almost everyone in town who could leave his work had come running, come to stare at the unfortunate man in mingled horror, concern, and curiosity. Rosamond stood at the side of the wagon, holding fast to her husband's blood-stained hand and weeping. The widow Judith was at her side. Have faith in Belzor, the widow was saying, and he will be healed. Have faith. I do, Rosamond was saying over and over through pale lips. I do have faith. Oh, my poor husband, you will be well. I have faith. People standing nearby glanced at each other and shook their heads. Someone went to fetch the stable owner, who was supposed to know all about setting broken bones. Odic arrived from the inn, his chubby face drawn and grieved. He had brought along a jug of his finest brandy, his customary offering in any medical emergency. "'Tie Gilone to a stretcher,' the widow Judith said. "'We'll carry him up the stairs. He will mend better in his own home.' 
a dwarf, a fellow townsman whom Raistlin knew by sight, glowered at her. Are you daft, woman? Jouncing him around like that will kill him. He shall not die, said the widow Judith loudly. Belzor will save him. The townspeople standing around exchanged glances. Some rolled their eyes, but others looked interested and attentive. He better do it fast, then, muttered the dwarf, standing on tiptoe to peer into the wagon. Beside him a kender was jumping up and down, clamoring, Let me see, Flint! Let me see! Caramon had climbed into the wagon. Almost as pale as his father, Caramon crouched beside Guillaume, anxious and helpless. At the sight of the terrible injuries, Guillaume's cracked rib bones protruded through his flesh, and one leg was a little more than a sodden mass of blood and bone. A low animal-like moan escaped Caramon's lips. Rosamond paid no attention to her stricken son. She stood at the side of the wagon, clutching Guillaume's hand and whispering frantically about having faith. Raced, Caramon cried in a hollow voice, looking around in panic. I am here, my brother, Raistlin said quietly. He climbed into the wagon beside Caramon. Caramon grasped hold of his twin's hand thankfully, gave a shuddering sigh. Raced, what can we do? We have to do something. Think of something to do, Raced. There's nothing to do, son, said the dwarf kindly. Nothing except wish your father well on his next journey. Raistlin examined the injured man and knew immediately that the dwarf was right. How Guillaume had managed to live this long was a mystery. Belzor is here, the widow Judith intoned shrilly. Belzor will heal this man. Belzor, Raistlin thought bitterly, is taking his own sweet time. Father, Caramon cried out. At the sound of his son's voice, Guillaume shifted his eyes, he could not move his head, and searched for his sons. His gaze found them, rested on them. Take care. Your mother, he managed to whisper. A froth of blood coated his lips. Caramon sobbed and covered his face with his hand. We will, father, Raistlin promised. Guillaume's gaze encompassed both his sons. He managed a fleeting smile, then looked over at Rosamond. He started to say something, but a tremor of pain shook him. He closed his eyes in agony, gave a great groan, and lay still. The dwarf removed his hat, held it to his chest. Reorks walk with him, he said softly. The poor man's dead! Oh, how sad, said the kender, and a tear trickled down his cheek. It was the first time death had come so close to Raistlin. He felt it as a physical presence, passing among them, dark wings spreading over them. He felt small and insignificant, naked and vulnerable. So sudden. An hour ago Guillaume had walked among the trees, thinking of nothing more important than what he might enjoy for dinner that night. So dark, endless darkness, eternal. 
It was not the absence of light that was as frightening as the absence of thought, of knowledge, of comprehension. Our lives, the lives of the living, will go on. The sun shines, the moons rise, we will laugh and talk, and he will know nothing, feel nothing. Nothing. So final. It will come to us all. It will come to me. Raistland thought he should be grieved or sorrowful for his father, but all he felt was sorrow for himself, grief for his own mortality. He turned away from the broken corpse, only to find his mother still clinging to the lifeless hand, stroking the cooling flesh, urging Gilone to speak to her. Caramon, we have to see to mother, Raistland said urgently. We must take her home. But on turning, he found that Caramon was in need of assistance himself. He had collapsed near the body of his father. Painful, choking sobs wrenched him. Raistlin rested his hand comfortingly on Caramon's arm. Caramon's big hand closed convulsively around his twins. Raistlin could not free himself, nor did he want to. He found comfort in his brother's touch. But he didn't like the fey look on his mother's face. Come, mother, let the widow Judith take you home. No, no, cried Rosamond frantically. I must not leave your father. He needs me. Mother, Raceland said, now starting to be frightened. Father is dead. There is nothing more... Dead? Rosamond looked bewildered. Dead? No. He can't be. I have faith. Rosamond flung herself on her husband. Her hands grasped his blood-soaked shirt. Gilone, wake up! Gilone's head lolled. A trickle of blood flowed from his mouth. I have faith, Rosamond repeated with a heartbroken whimper. Her hands were bloody. She clung to the blood-soaked shirt. Mother, please go home, Raistlin pleaded helplessly. Odic took hold of Rosamond's hands and gently freed her grip. Another neighbor hurriedly covered the body with a blanket. So much for Belzor, said the dwarf in a grating undertone. He had not meant his words to be overheard, but his voice was deep and had a good carrying quality to it. Everyone standing around heard him. A few looked shocked. Several shook their heads. One or two smiled grimly when they thought no one was watching. The widow Judith had done a good deal of proselytizing during her arrival in town, and she'd gained more than a few converts to her new faith. Some of those converts were regarding the dead man with dismay. Who's Balzor? the kinder asked eagerly in shrill tones. Flint, do you know Balzor? Was he supposed to heal this poor man? Why didn't he, do you suppose? Hush your mouth, Tass, you doorknob, the dwarf said in a harsh whisper. But this was a question many of the faithful newcomers were asking themselves. They looked to the widow Judith for an answer. The widow Judith had not lost her faith. Her face hardened. She glared at the dwarf, glared even more fiercely at the kender, who was now lifting the corner of the blanket for a curious peep at the corpse. 
Perhaps he's been healed and we just haven't noticed, the Kender offered helpfully. He has not been healed, the widow Judith cried out in dolorous tones. Gilon Majer has not been healed, nor will he be healed. Why not, do you ask? Because of the sinfulness of this woman, the widow Judith pointed at Rosamond. Her daughter is a whore. Her son is a witch. It is her fault and the fault of her children that Guillaume Majer died. The pointing finger might have been a spear ripping through Rosamond's body. She stared at Judith in shock, then screamed and sank to her knees, moaning. Raistlin was on his feet, climbing over the body of his father. How dare you, he said softly, menacingly to the widow. Reaching the side of the wagon, he vaulted out. Get out of here. He came face to face with the widow. Leave us alone. You see? The widow Judith backed up precipitously. The pointing finger shifted to Raistlin. He is evil. He does the bidding of evil gods. A fire blazed up within Raistlin, blazed up white hot, consumed sense, consumed reason. He could see nothing in the glare of the blaze. He didn't care if the fire destroyed him, just so long as it destroyed Judith. Raced! A hand grabbed him. A hand, strong and firm, reached into the midst of the blaze and grasped hold of him. Raced! Stop! The hand, his brother's hand, dragged Raistlin out of the fire. The terrible white-hot glare that had blinded him died, the fire died, leaving him cold and shivering, with a taste of ashes in his mouth. Caramon's strong arms wrapped around Raistlin's thin shoulders. Don't harm her, Raist, Caramon was saying. His voice came out like a croak. His throat was raw from weeping. Don't prove her right. The widow, white-faced and blenching, had backed up against a tree. She glanced about at her neighbors. You saw good people of Salas. He tried to kill me. He's a fiend in human clothing, I tell you. Send this mother and her demon spawn away. Cast them out of Salas. Show Belzor that you will not tolerate such evil. The crowd was silent, their faces dark and impassive. Moving slowly, they came together to form a circle a protective circle with the Majer family in the center. Rosamond crouched on the ground, her head bowed. Raistlin and Caramon stood close together near their mother. Although Kitiara was not there, she had not been with the family in years, her spirit had been invoked, and she was also present, if only in the minds of her siblings. Guillaume lay dead in the wagon, his body covered by a blanket. His blood was starting to seep through the wool. The widow Judith stood outside the circle, and still no one spoke. A man shoved his way through from the back of the crowd. Raistlin had only an indistinct impression of him. The still smoldering fire within clouded his vision. But he would remember him as tall, clean-shaven, with long hair that covered his ears, fell to his shoulders. He was clad in leather, trimmed with fringe, and wore a bow over one shoulder. He walked up to the widow. 
I think you are the one who had better leave solace, he said. His voice was quiet. He wasn't threatening her, merely stating a fact. The widow scowled at him and flashed a glance around at the people in the crowd behind him. Are you going to let this half-breed talk to me like this? she demanded. Tannis is right, said Odic, waddling forward to lend his support. He waved a pudgy hand in which he still held his brandy jug. You'll just go along back to Haven, my good woman, and take Belzor with you. He's not needed around here. We care for our own. Take your mother home, lads, said the dwarf. Don't fret about your pa. We'll see to the burial. You'll want to be there, of course. We'll let you know when it's time. Raistlin nodded, unable to speak. He bent down, grasped hold of his mother. She was limp in his hands, limp and shredded, like a rag doll that has been worried and torn by savage dogs. She gazed about her with a vacuous expression that Raistlin remembered well. His heart shriveled within him. Mother, he said in a choked voice, we're going to go home now. Rosamond did not respond. She did not seem to have hurt him. She sagged, dead weight in his arms. Caramon? Raistlin looked to his brother. Caramon nodded, his eyes filled with tears. Between them, they carried their mother home. Chapter 3 The following morning, Guillaume Magier was buried beneath the Valenwoods, a seedling planted on his grave as was customary among the inhabitants of Solace. His sons came to the ceremony. His wife did not. She's sleeping, said Caramon, with a blush for his lie. We didn't want to wake her. The truth was, they couldn't wake her. By afternoon, everyone in Solace knew that Rosamond Magier had fallen into one of her trances. She had fallen deep this time, so deep that she could hear no voice, however loved, that called to her. The neighbors came, offering condolences and suggestions to aid in her recovery, some of which, the use of spirits of hartshorn, for instance, which she was to inhale, Raistland tried. Others, such as jabbing her repeatedly with a pin, he did not. At least, not at first. Not before the terrible fear set in. The neighbors brought food to tempt her appetite, for the word spread among her friends that Rosamond would not eat. Odic himself brought an immense basket of delicacies from the inn of the last home, including a steaming pot of his famous spiced potatoes, Odic being firm in the belief that no living being and very few of the unliving could hold out long against that wonderful garlic-scented aroma. Caramon took the food with a wan smile and a quiet thank you. He did not let Odic into the house, but stood blocking the door with his big body. Is she any better? Odic asked, craning to see over Caramon's shoulder. Odic was a good man, one of the best in solace. He would have given away his beloved inn if he had thought that it would have helped the sick woman. But he did enjoy gossip, and Guillaume's tragic death and his wife's strange illness were the talk of the common room. Caramon finally managed to close the door. 
He stood listening for a moment to Odic's heavy footsteps tromping across the boardwalk, heard him stop to talk to several of the ladies of the town. Caramon heard his mother's name mentioned frequently. Sighing, he took the food into the kitchen and stacked it up with all the rest of the provisions. He ladled spiced potatoes into a bowl, adding a tempting slab of ham, fresh-baked in cider, and poured a glass of elven wine. He intended to take them to his mother, but he paused on the threshold of her bedroom. Caramon loved his mother. A good son was supposed to love his mother, and Caramon had been as good a son as he knew how to be. He was not close to his mother. He felt closer to Kitiara, who had done more to raise both him and Raistlin than had Rosamund. Caramon pitied his mother with all his heart. He was extremely sad and worried for her. But he had to steel himself to enter that room, as he imagined he would one day have to steel himself to enter battle. The sick room was dark and hot, the air fetid and unpleasant to breathe and to smell. Rosamond lay on her back on the bed, staring up at nothing. Yet she saw something, apparently, for her eyes moved and changed expression. Sometimes the eyes were wide, the pupils dilated, as if what she saw terrified her. At these times her breathing grew rapid and shallow. At other times she was calm. Sometimes she would even smile, a ghastly smile that was heartbreaking to see. She never spoke, at least that they could understand. She made sounds, but these were guttural, incoherent. She never closed her eyes. She never slept. Nothing roused her or caused her to look away from whatever visions she saw, visions that held her enthralled. Her bodily functions continued. Raistlin cleaned up after her, bathed her. It had been three days since Guillaume's burial, and Raistlin had not left his mother's side. He slept on a pallet on the floor, waking at the least sound she made. He talked to her constantly, telling her funny stories about the pranks the boys played at school, telling her about his own hopes and dreams, telling her about his herb garden and the plants he grew there. He forced her to take liquid by dipping a cloth in water, then holding it to her lips and squeezing it into her mouth, only a trickle at a time lest she choke on it. He had tried feeding her, too, but she had been unable to swallow the food, and he had been forced to give this up. He handled her gently, with infinite tenderness and unflagging patience. Caramon stood in the doorway watching the two of them. Raistlin sat beside his mother's bed, brushing out her long hair and reciting to her stories of her own girlhood in Polanthus. You think you know my brother, Caramon said, talking silently to a line of faces. You, Master Theobald, and you, John Farnish, and you, Sturm Brightblade, and all the rest of you. You call him sly and sneak. You say he's cold and calculating and unfeeling. You think you know him. I know him. Caramon's eyes filled with tears. I know him. I'm the only one. He waited another moment until he could see again, wiping his eyes and his nose on the sleeve of his shirt, slopping the wine over himself in the process. This done, he drew in a last deep breath of fresh air and then entered the dark and dismal sick room. I brought some food, raced, said Caramon. Raistlin glanced at his brother, then turned back to Rosamond. 
She won't eat it. I, uh, meant it for you, Raced. You've got to eat something. You'll get sick if you don't, Caramon added, seeing his brother's head start to move in negation. And if you get sick, what'll I do? I'm not a very good nurse, Raced. Raistlin looked up at his brother. You don't give yourself enough credit, my brother. I remember times when I was ill. You would make shadow pictures on the wall for me. Rabbits. His voice died away. Caramon's throat closed, choked by tears. He blinked them away quickly and held out the plate. Come on, Raced. Eat. Just a little. It's Odix potatoes. His panacea for all the ills of the world, Raistlin said, his mouth twisting. Very well. He replaced the brush on a small nightstand. Taking the plate, he ate some of the potatoes and nibbled a little on the ham. Caramon watched anxiously. His face fell in disappointment when Raistlin handed back the plate, still more than half filled with food. Is that all you want? Are you sure? Can I get you something else? We've got lots. Raistlin shook his head. Rosamond made a sound, a pitiful murmur. Raistlin moved swiftly to attend her, bending over her, talking to her soothingly, helping her to lie more comfortably. He moistened her lips with water, chaffed the thin hands. Is, is she any better? Caramon asked helplessly. He could tell at a glance she wasn't but he hoped he might be wrong. Besides, he felt the need to say something, to hear his own voice. He didn't like it when the house was so strangely quiet. He didn't like being cooped up in this dark, unhappy room. He wondered how his brother could stand it. No, Raistlin said. If anything, she is worse. He paused a moment, and when he spoke next, his voice was hushed, awed. It's as if she's running down a road, Caramon, running away from me. I follow after her. I call to her to stop, but she doesn't hear me. She doesn't pay any attention to me. She is running very fast, Caramon. Raistlin stopped talking, turned away. He pretended to busy himself with the blankets. Take that plate back to the kitchen, he ordered, his voice harsh. It will draw mice. I'll... I'll take the plate back to the kitchen, Caramon mumbled and hurried off. Once in the kitchen, he flung the plate toward what he assumed was the table. He couldn't see very well for the blur in his eyes. Someone knocked on the door, but he ignored it, and after a while, whoever it was went away. Caramon leaned against the fireplace, gulping in deep breaths, blinking very hard and fast, willing himself not to cry anymore. Regaining his composure, he returned to the sick room. He had news that would, he hoped, bring a small amount of cheer to his twin. He found Raistlin seated once more by the bed. Rosamond lay in the same position, her staring eyes sunken in her head. Her wasted hands lay limp on the counterpane. Her wrist bones seemed unnaturally large. Her flesh seemed to be slipping away with her spirit. She appeared to have deteriorated in just the few moments Caramon was gone. He shifted his gaze hurriedly away from her, kept it focused on his twin. 
Odic was here, Caramon said unnecessarily, for his brother had surely deduced this from the arrival of the potatoes. He said that the widow Judith left solace this morning. Did she? Raistlin said. A statement, not a question. He looked around. A flicker of flame lit his red-rimmed eyes. Where did she go? Back to Haven. Caramon managed to grin. She's gone to report us to Belzor. She's claiming he was going to come here and make us sorry we were ever born. An unfortunate choice of phrase. Raistlin winced and looked quickly at their mother. Caramon took two swift steps, laid his hand on his brother's shoulder, gripped it hard. You can't think that, Raist, he admonished. You can't think that this is your fault. Isn't it? Raistlin returned bitterly. If it hadn't been for me, Judith would have let Mother alone. That woman came because of me, Caramon. I was the one she was after. Mother asked me to quit my magic once. I wondered why she would say such a thing. It was Judith hounding her. If I had only known at the... What would you have done, Raistlin? Caramon interrupted. He crouched down beside his brother's chair, looked up at him earnestly. What would you have done? Quit your school, give up the magic? Would you have done that? Raistlin sat silent a moment, his hands absently plucking the folds of his worn shirt. No, he said finally. But I would have talked to Mother. I would have explained it to her. He glanced at his mother. Reaching out, he took hold of the pitifully thin hand, squeezed it, not very gently, willing to see some response, even a grimace of pain. He could have crushed that hand in his hand, crushed it like an empty eggshell, and Rosamond would have never so much as blinked. Sighing, he looked back at Caramon. It wouldn't have made any difference, would it, my brother? Raistlin asked softly. None in the world, Caramon said. None at all. Raistlin released his mother's hand. The marks of his fingers were red on her pallid flesh. He took hold of his brother's hand and held it tightly. They sat together in silence for long moments, finding comfort in each other. Then Raistlin looked quizzically at his brother. You are wise, Caramon. Did you know that? Caramon laughed, a great guffaw that broke like thunder in the dark room, alarmed him. He clapped his hand over his mouth, flushed red. No, I'm not raced, he said in a smothered whisper. You know me. Stupid as a gully dwarf. Everyone says so. You got all the brains, but that's all right. You need them, I don't. Not so long as we're together. Raistlin abruptly released his grip. He drew his hand away and averted his face. There is a difference between wisdom and intelligence, my brother. His voice was cold. A person may have one without the other. Why don't you go for a walk, or go back to work for your farmer? But, raised, it's not necessary for both of us to remain here. I can manage. Caramon rose slowly to his feet. Raced, I don't— Please, Caramon, Raistlin said. If you must know the truth, you fidget and fuss, and that drives me to distraction. You will feel better for the fresh air and exercise, and I will be better for the solitude. Sure, Raist, Caramon said. If that's what you want, 
I'll... I guess I'll go see Sturm. His mother came to call and brought some fresh-baked bread. I'll just go and say thank you. You do that, Raistlin said dryly. Caramon never knew what brought on these dark and bitter moods. Never knew what he'd said or done that quenched the light in his brother, as surely as if he'd doused him with cold water. He waited a moment to see if his brother might relent, say something more, ask him to stay and keep him company. But Raistlin was dipping a bit of cloth into a pitcher of water. He held the cloth to Rosamond's lips. You must drink a little of this, mother, he said softly. Caramon sighed, turned, and left. A day later, Rosamond was dead. Chapter 4 The twins buried their mother in the grave next to their father. Only a few people stood with them at the burial. The day was wet and chill, with a touch of early autumn in the air. Rain poured down steadily, soaking to the skin those who gathered around the grave. The rain drummed on the wooden coffin, formed a small pool in the grave. The valinwood sprig they planted drooped, sad and forlorn, half-drowned. Raceland stood bareheaded in the rain, though Caramon had several times anxiously urged him to cover his head with the hood of his cloak. Raceland did not hear his brother's pleas. He heard nothing but the fall of the drops on the wooden coffin, a small coffin, almost that of a child. Rosamond had shrunk to skin and bones in those last terrible days. It was as if whatever she was seeing held her fast in its claws, gnawed her flesh, fed off her, devoured her. Raistlin knew he himself was going to fall ill. He recognized the symptoms. The fever already burned in his blood. He was alternately sweating and shivering. His muscles ached. He wanted so much to sleep, but every time he tried he heard his mother's voice calling to him, and he would be instantly awake. Awake to the silence, the dreadful silence. He wanted to cry at the burial, but he did not. He forced the tears back down his throat. It wasn't that he was ashamed of them. He did not know for certain for whom he wept for his dead mother, or for himself. He was not aware of the ceremony, was not aware of the passage of time. He might have been standing on the edge of that grave all his life. He knew it was over only when Caramon plucked at his sleeve. At that, it wasn't Caramon who convinced his twin to leave, but the sound of the dirt clods striking the coffin, a hollow sound that sent a shudder through Raistlin. He took a step, stumbled, and nearly fell into the grave. Caramon caught him, steadied him. Raced! You're burning up! Caramon exclaimed in concern. Did you hear her, Caramon? Raistlin asked anxiously, peering down at the coffin. Did you hear her calling for me? Caramon put his arm around his twin. We have to get you home, he said firmly. We must hurry, Raistlin gasped, shoving aside his brother's hand. He seemed intent on leaping into the grave. She's calling me. But he couldn't walk properly. Something was wrong with the ground. It rolled like the back of a leviathan, rolled and pitched him off. He was sinking, sinking into the grave. 
The dirt was falling on him, and still he could hear her voice. Raistlin collapsed, fell to the ground at the graveside. His eyes closed. He lay unmoving in the mud and fallen leaves. Caramon bent over him. Raist, he called, giving him a little shake. His twin did not respond. Caramon glanced around. He was alone with his brother except for the gravedigger, who was shoveling as rapidly as he could to get out of the wet. The other mourners had left as soon as decently possible, heading for the warmth of their homes or the crackling fire in the inn of the last home. They had spoken their final condolences hurriedly, not really knowing what to say. No one had known Rosamond very well. No one had liked her. There was no one to help Caramon, no one to advise him. He was on his own. He bent down, prepared to lift his brother in his arms and carry him home. A pair of shining black boots and the hem of a brown cloak came into his view. Hello, Caramon. He looked up, thrust back his hood to see better. The rain poured down, streamed from his hair into his eyes. A woman stood in front of him, a woman around twenty years of age, maybe older. She was attractive, though not beautiful. Her hair beneath her hood was black and curled damply around her face. Her eyes were dark and bright, perhaps a little too bright, shining with a diamond's hardness. She wore brown leather armor molded to fit over her curvaceous figure. A green, loose-fitting blouse, green woolen hose, and the shining black boots that came to her knees. A sword hung from her hip. She seemed familiar. Caramon knew he knew her, but he didn't have time to sort through the lumber yard that was his memory. He mumbled something about having to help his brother, but the woman was now down beside him, kneeling over Raistlin. He's my brother, too, you know, she said, and her mouth twisted in a crooked smile. Kit, Caramon gasped, recognizing her at last. What are you... where did you... how did you... Here, we better get him somewhere warm and dry, Kittyara interrupted, taking charge of the situation, much to Caramon's relief. She was strong, as strong as a man. Between the two of them they lifted Raistlin to his feet. He roused briefly, stared around with unfocused eyes, muttered something. His eyes rolled back, his head lolled. He lost consciousness again. He's, he's never been this sick, Caramon said, his fear of something real and alive inside him, squeezing his heart. I've never seen him this bad. Bah, I've seen worse, said Kittyara confidently. Lots worse. I've treated worse, too. Arrow wounds in the gut, legs cut off. Don't worry, she added, her smile softening in sympathy for Caramon's anguish. I fought death before over my baby brother, and I won. I can do it again if need be.